This morning, of course, uh, we have a special guest with us, actually three special guests with us. Uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan and his parents, Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan, are here with us this morning. And um, I first um, got to meet Dr. Yuan back in 2014. He was here along with his parents on a snowy, apparently he remembers this better than I, but a snowy Sunday he showed up here and we had him in as a guest speaker back in 2014. Um, Dr. Yuan um, has written several books. His very first book called Out of a Far Country. I think we have a slide for that later on, but maybe you can pop that up now. He's written two books. His first book is with his mom, uh, Angela, and it's written, it's called Out of a Far Country. And I think they published that back in 2014. 2011. 2011. 2011. And then most recently in 2020, uh, Dr. Yuan wrote a book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. You can see it right there. And it is the uh, outreach magazine, named it the, um, the book of the year for, for outreach and for evangelistic purposes, and um, sold over 100,000 copies. It's um, making a huge influence. Dr. Yuan has spoken in over five continents, uh, literally thousands upon thousands of people. And um, it's our privilege. We worked alongside of Tulio Christian, Emmanuel Baptist School, um, Five Lakes Church, and Westgate Chapel to bring uh, Dr. Yuan and his parents here this past week. They've been here all week. And um, it's a real privilege for us to have them here. Um, uh, again, he's spoken all over the world. Uh, Dr. Yuan not only has an um, undergraduate, but a master's and a doctorate degree. And um, more than those accolades, God is using him. Doctor, he's using Dr. Yuan and his parents, uh, Leon and Angela. I believe that um, if there's a voice that needs to be heard for our generation, for our times, the discerning of our times, it's Dr. Yuan and his parents' voices. And, um, you know, anywhere in the world, if there are some issues on identity in Christ, who we are in Jesus Christ, um, if I could recommend just one of a few people to speak to you and to speak to us as a church, it's Dr. Yuan and his parents' voice as the Holy Spirit, as God speaks to us through them. And so I can't, with, it's without reservation and no hesitation, um, with great excitement and um, thankfulness that we're able to bring Dr. Yuan and his parents in to speak to us this morning. So with that, would you welcome Dr. Christopher Yuan and his parents, Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan. America, where money grows on trees. <laughs> and street, our line was gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. <laughs> the first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem, even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wear masks, ring doorbells, and it's a trick or treat. I said to myself, what, uh, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came to America a few months after me, then we married 
the next year. I assume, just because we were in love, so we were live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then. After years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that year, May 15th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her, making our son gay. My son Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave without any hesitation. Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife. It would hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I have no more reason to live. So I determined to do uh, the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and a pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that. Just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called the number at the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady in Louisville who began to disciple me. 
for six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. But in reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very excited. She told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. <laughs> but what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know God was also work on me. So I started going to church with her. Then a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding and the love for God and his word. We'll study the Bible in my church and in BSF. I also give my life to Jesus Christ. God, God became the group, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son Christopher walked further and further away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> See, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these same sex attractions was when I was nine years old after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, and I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And to be clear, not all gay men do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. That is part of my story. And when I tell you my story, I got to tell you my whole story. But I also need to tell you that when you encounter Christ, 
he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in, for, in, I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents would do anyway? <laughs> to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her kids following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the sad reality is, many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we actually... Sometimes are forcing our kids to do the same. Parents, are you putting more emphasis upon your children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school? All good things. Or should we putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis, upon our kids following Jesus? It's no wonder why many people grow up in the church and they go off to college and they leave their faith behind. Because maybe actually they were never really worshiping God in the first place. Nothing is more important and following Jesus. But honestly, I was not happy about mom's decision. She wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. And I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. But little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son, we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, 
I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left it on his counter anyway. We found out later, as long as we walked out the door, he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over 100 prayer warriors from our church, from Bible Fellowship, uh, from Bible Study Fellowship, we all cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold, prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years. Once fasted 39 days um, for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayer, and following is one of those prayers. I will stay in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I would never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait. Be still and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. This definitely was not an exception. But my parents were 
unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mom bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. The miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. But what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. (laughs) And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she had prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you moms out there, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. (laughs) So I was down to the bottom of the list. I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But mom's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, if you can believe it or not, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do like that 
good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down. Next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. I passed by this garbage can. You know, I actually was doing all that I could to stay to myself. You know, obviously. I mean, I don't want to mingle with those really, really bad people. You know, those criminals. <laughs> so I was walking around the cell block by myself, and I passed by this garbage can. And it was a mound of trash. And I looked at this, and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad has two doctorates. I was just three months, three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. I was about to pass this by. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book for the first time I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I was not thinking, this is the Word of God, and I certainly wasn't thinking, this is the answer. I just thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and a better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles, it's not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things were going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The prison guards handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. I Shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down. And I just knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. 
So she wrote something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His silent and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn at my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumble up the steps and drag my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul.
few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess, the complete mess I've made of my life. I lie there on my bed, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope. And a future. You see, the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation in Israel to tell me that if God could have a plan for Israel in rebellion, in exile, he could have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God just gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that right on that day, I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then poof, everything was perfect. Far from the truth. God began convicting me of my dependencies. I had many idols in my life. The most obvious was drugs. Within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of. It was my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the Old Testament, three in the New, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion. I'm like, I, I don't even know, I don't know anything about the Bible. I gotta ask someone who's really informed about the Bible, who's studied the Bible, who's even gone to cemetery, seminary. And he actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other, and can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any shred of evidence, 
any verse that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true, right? But aren't we, don't we, just because we're sinners, we often like to add to God's truth. I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. I had thought in the past, before I had become a Christian, if I were to become a Christian, I had to become heterosexual. What does that mean? Well, I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. Even, I thought, the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. <laughs> but I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality, it's the right direction, not the right goal. Because if you think about this, God never says, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God ever say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories, not biblical ones. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. God never promised you oh, you'll never be tempted again. No, Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So change, it's not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm tempted or whether I'm struggling, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God 
total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on to ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them to collect my parents, and I told them, I think God's calling me to ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was really excited when I got it torn open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where I needed references. Remember that, Caleb? References. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So beat that, Caleb. <laughs> Amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in, uh, praise the Lord. And then back in 2011, I had the really cool privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She wrote, she wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from her own voice the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. And this book, we found out uh, is being used as a textbook in Christian schools. Can you believe that? We never thought that our testimony would be used as a textbook. But it makes sense. Our kids are being flooded, inundated with resources on sexuality. They're being told stories of people who say, I'm so happy that I'm finally who I am. Actually, God isn't really so concerned about being happy. He wants us to be holy in Christ. He don't he doesn't want us to embrace ourselves, but he wants us to embrace Jesus. And so we're giving, uh, you know, parents are even using this from like eight years old on up because kids love stories. And the Bible is actually, the majority of the Bible is story, true story, using story to communicate truth. So, uh, and they're using it a text, and, and there's this study guide in the back of both of these books, actually, but there's a study guide in the back of this that parents are using with their kids to get discussed with them. Because I hope 
you realize this truth that the, that the primary responsibility to teach sex education actually shouldn't belong in the hands of the public schools. Amen? It also shouldn't belong in the hands of Hollywood. But if we're honest, actually, Hollywood isn't what's influencing our kids, is it? TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. You know what we call these stars? What do we call them? Influencers. That's exactly what they're doing, and they're not influencing them to Christ. You know who holds the responsibility to teach our youth about sex and sexuality? Who is that? Parents. But I'm going to add something to that, because parents, you all need some help. Grandparents. Let's see those hands. How many of you in here are grandparents? Any great-grandparents? You know why I'm adding you to list? You have too much time on your hands. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, I'm busier than ever. But seriously, here's a big reason why I'm adding you grandparents to the list. Think back when you were kids, teenagers. How much did you listen to your parents at that age? Maybe grandma, grandpa, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids than the parents do. Are we using that to throw them a lifeline when they're drowning in a tsunami of lies? Are we? Let's do that. Grandma, grandpa, right now, let's think. In your mind, when was the last time or when was the time? that you spoke to your kids about sex and sexuality. Think about that right now. And then think about how our kids, grandkids, are being, if not on a daily basis or an every other day basis, at least on a weekly basis. I believe it's more than daily. How do you think that's stemming the tide? The right question is not to ask, when is it too early? especially if the teachers are mandated to talk about it in pre-K. Exactly, pre-K. When it's in pre-K and we're asking, is it too early? Is that the right question? Pre-K is what? Four years old. And they're already talking to our kids about gender and sexuality. And we're wondering, is it too early? That's absolutely not the right question. You know what's the right question? Is it too late? So I gave this challenge uh, in Alabama, rural Alabama. And this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table, and she's like, I need 10 books. I'm thinking, whoa, you just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for every single one of my grandchildren. Tomorrow I'm going to mail them, every one of them, a book, and then I'm, as a grandma, I'm going to read it with them, and I'm going to discuss it with them. A grandma. 
That's someone who's taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have as mom and dads, grandma and grandpas, to not just give the responsibility to the world, but actually say, I'm taking it back. Anyone in here that wants to take it back, let's see those hands. All those hands. Fathers, grandfathers, grandparents, let's see those hands. We're going to take it back. Amen? Amen? Because silence is no longer an option. And I know you're thinking, maybe dad, you're thinking, oh my goodness, that's the last thing I want to do is talk to my preteen girl about sex. Because if you don't, it's guaranteed the world will, gladly. So what do you talk, what do you say? Sometimes our message is this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. That's all important messages, but you can't build a Christian life on God's no, can we? What's God's yes? You know, for too long, that's all been our messages. Abstinence programs, that's great, but that's just God's no. Is that really setting them up for life? What about after abstinence? So my book, Holy Sexuality, is about what is God's yes. And in a nutshell, it's this, chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. The really exciting news, um, my, that my new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, I wrote that for parents and, and adults and young adults. That was two years ago, but now I'm realizing just in these past two years, that's not enough. We need resources for kids. I mean, if parents, if you're the main ones that's supposed to talk to your kids, well, where are those resources? So I'm taking Holy Sexuality, and right now I'm creating a video curriculum, a 10-lesson video curriculum for parents. I'm calling it a family curriculum so that you can use these 10 lessons, maybe over 10 weeks or even 10 days, about 40 minutes a day or 30 to 40 minutes a day, watch a couple videos, uh, and then have these discussions with your kids and lay this foundation of biblical sexuality. It's for parents and grandparents. If you're interested at all, it's going to come out in November, but we're collecting names and emails if you're interested. Go to, my website is holysexuality.com. That's just my website, my ministry website, but this curriculum is going to be on holysexuality.com. Go to holysexuality.com, and you could right now type in your name and your email, and actually, if you do that now, you can even get a 10% discount when it comes out um, on, uh, you know, in November. But uh, we have to be proactive and recognize silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God had a sense of humor because he brought me back to Moody where for 12 years, Caleb was one of my students, for 12 years I taught in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far, far, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. As the worship team comes up and as I close, you know, I look back on my life, years apart from Christ. I see a lot of really bad decisions that I've made, some that have resulted in some big consequences, one of those being HIV positive. But I realized something, that I'm no different than any of you. 
all of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room has ever been promised tomorrow on this good earth. But don't we take it for granted? You know, it took contracting this virus. There's no cure for me to realize that as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know, this world we live in today, isn't it a crazy world? Turn on the news. You open up the newspaper. Go to the grocery store. This world we're living in does not need another good Christian. A good Christian who goes to church every Sunday, nice person, but doing little for the kingdom of God. We don't need more good Christians. But you know what this world needs? You know what this world demands? Are great Christians. Christians who don't settle Christians who don't really care what the person on the left says, what the person on the right says, but they just care what their heavenly father says. Christians who are crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are living with urgency. God has given every one of us only one life to live. Not to waste it chasing and going up the career ladder, just making money, going day to day, clock in, clock out. But chasing after Jesus and telling the world about him. Being great doesn't mean say, oh, look at how great I am. That's the world. But great means being the least of these. Not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because there, there's gonna come one day where every one of us, whether you're ready or not, in the blink of an eye, we're gonna stand before our God. God of all creation. And yet you have called us your child. You have allowed us to call you Father. 
Forgive us that we have not made you always number one. Forgive us, God, that we have seen other things in this world that seem to be more interesting or tempting or appealing. Forgive us, oh God. God, I pray that you would help us to live with urgency. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. You do, but we don't. Help us to live every day sold out to you, oh God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live with urgency, making every day count, making a difference one life at a time. For we look with great anticipation when we can see you face to face. Lord, help us to realize that you are the mighty one. Lord, I thank you that you have given me new life. That my testimony is not about a person who identified as gay and no longer does anymore, but you have given me this one testimony. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind and now I see. I did not believe and now I believe in you. Help us to love you more than life. For it is the matchless, mighty name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said,